Democrats and other vampires sucking the lifeblood from the throat of human decency are beginning to worry that democracy is in danger from democracy. With the latest polls showing that voters may throw Democrats out of office, then bounce them down the street like basketballs, then kick them from one side of the curb to the other, then jump up and down on their stomach shouting, take that, you stupid Democrats, then kick them from side to side some more before covering them with tar and feathers, hurling them into the Potomac and pelting them with rotten fruit as they float out to sea, then rounding them up in fishing nets and bringing them back on land to kick them from side to side again. Uh, I forgot where I was going with this. But the point is, Democrats may lose majorities in Congress, and they feel this presents an existential threat to their majorities in Congress, or democracy, you know, whichever. In the New York Times, a former newspaper, editor-in-chief Blithering Prevarication III, wrote an essay for the opinion page, or as it's often called, Knucklehead Row. The essay said, quote, Our democratic system is terribly broken if people can just go to the polls and vote for whatever candidate they happen to prefer. Here at the Times, the image of a mob swarming into voting booths one at a time conjures up traumatic memories of January 6th, when a mob swarmed into the Capitol and would have murdered public officials if they had murdered public officials. Now, once again, we tremble at the sight of large numbers of people violently casting their violent votes to violently chase those same public officials from office violently. This is the kind of behavior that gave us Donald Trump and a booming economy and no new wars. And we certainly don't want that again because Donald Trump is a gigantic booger and a poo-poo head, not to mention a stink-faced cooties magnet. Neener, neener, neener. Unquote. Although Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has not shared her fears publicly, she did speak in the privacy of Jake Tapper's new show on CNN, saying, quote, Today, as I was in the bathroom, mainlining Botox into my face to keep my head from collapsing in on itself like something in the last reel of a Dracula movie, I spoke to the people of the United States, or my own reflection, and tried to warn them, or possibly myself, about the damage their voting could do to democracy. I said, people of the United States, or me, to vote against Democrats is completely out of keeping with the American founders' vision of how I want you to vote. If Democrats lose their majorities, there will be no going back until Democrats change their absurd philosophy and stop making a crap heap out of everything they touch. And that may not happen in my lifetime, because it's my lifetime and I'm the cause of a lot of it. We must preserve democracy to enforce the will of the people as long as the will of the people is whatever I say it is, unquote. At a campaign stop at a Girl Scout rally he'd snuck off to while the Secret Service was busy playing Grand Theft Auto, President and venal houseplant Joe Biden told a 13-year-old girl, quote, It has never been more important that you stop running away from me and let me bury my nose in your beautiful golden hair so I can describe all the things you shouldn't let boys do to your plump, luscious, pubescent body. Also, democracy is important. And so we mustn't allow some semi-fascist with half a black shirt and one jackboot to acquire the other half of that shirt and another boot and become a full fascist because then he might go out and fascistly vote, which he wouldn't do if he only had half a shirt and one boot because then people would see he was only a semi-fascist and that would be embarrassing for him. Democracy is on the ballot and if people vote against democracy, then democracy will lose. So it's a good thing democracy isn't on the ballot because that wouldn't make any sense. It would be like walking around with half a shirt and one boot. Now come back here, you flirty little vixen, unquote. Democrats have pledged they will do everything they can to protect democracy during this election, but they're not sure they'll be able to get away with it this time. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world. 
zippity zing. It's a wonderful day. Hurrah, hooray! It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray! Oh, hooray, hurrah! All right, it's Friday again, and we are laughing our way through absolute hell on earth. But the polls are turning toward the Republicans, and journalists are reacting by devolving from corrupt toads into hysterical, babbling corrupt toads. Prime Minister Liz Truss is gone already, but Tulsi Gabbard is here, and we'll be talking to her about her next move after leaving the Democrats. Uh, you know, last week I showed you that uh, Good Morning America clip where Otto Penzler, the great mystery editor, talked about uh, When Christmas Comes, my last mystery novel, as uh, being one of the great mystery novels of the last 10 years. Uh, and I, I went on Amazon to see if it was having an effect, and it was, and there were new reviews, and it was up the scale and everything. Uh, and people were saying, um, this is a Claven classic. They were talking about When Christmas Comes. And another one said, I cannot wait for a strange habit of mind. Well... A Strange Habit of Mine, which is the sequel to When Christmas Comes, comes out in four days. It's Tuesday. Please pre-order it now. Please go on and buy this book so the series will continue. And I promise you, you will like it. But I cannot make this into a series unless you are on board. Also go on and subscribe to my personal YouTube channel, the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, where we have exclusive content. If you ring that little bell, it will also unleash a nuclear strike against an unnamed city. Uh, and if you leave a comment, and the comment is really deeply hateful uh, and just something you can never take back and can never be forgiven for, we will read it on the air uh, to make sure your life is a living hell. Uh, Kevin Benning says, I don't know how Claven still has enough people watching his podcast since he killed Kills them off every week in the Clavenless week. Well, that is, you know, people sometimes say, how come you, you know, you don't have as many uh, uh, subscribers as Knowles does when Knowles obviously is, you know, what he is and you're you. Uh, but that's why they die every week. You know, it's not just the madness of election season. Autumn is always a crazy, hectic, and wonderful time of the year. School starts up again so you can get rid of your kids. And pretty soon, many of us will be traveling to see our families and loved ones for the holidays. And during this busy time of the year, you may find yourself away from home more often than not. That's why you want to team up with Ring. With Ring security products, you can rest assured your home and family will be safe when you're not there. The Ring doorbell notifies you when guests or packages arrive. Working parents, you can even watch from the office to make sure your kids get off the school bus safely. Ring's indoor cams are a great way to keep an eye on kids and pets when you're not there. So head to ring.com slash collections slash offers to find out how you can live a little more stress-free this season with a Ring product that's right for you. That's ring.com slash collections slash offers. Ring.com slash collections slash offers. Make your home safe and secure so you can travel with a peaceful mind. So I have to tell you, before I really get into the show, I have to tell you that I just, I got back from Florence, Italy uh, at 10 o'clock last night went to bed, woke up at uh, 5 o'clock this morning, and got on a plane to Nashville. So here I am, and I'm totally jet-lagged, absolutely exhausted. And so if I sound... Here's here's what I want. If I sound like a, a, a babbling, demented old man, just don't elect me president, all right? Because... 
because I'm not, I'm not that demented, not yet, anyway. Uh, and, I, and, you know, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, this trip to Italy, but I can't tell you about it because it was a meeting between uh, extro- some of the great minds in the country and me because uh, I needed someone to clean out the ashtrays afterwards. Uh, and they were talking and saying, you know, freely, and that now is something that's very difficult to do in America without taking great risks, as everyone there had done and I've done. Uh, and so I can't really tell you a lot about it, but I, there are some things I can talk about that don't have to do with the people who were there, and I will. Um, but it, but it's really it's really interesting that you can't even you can't even have the kind of academic conversations that academics used to have. Um, so there are two polls. Well, there's one one really important poll. This is really funny. The headline in the New York Times: Republicans gain edge as voters worry about economy. Times Siena poll finds, and what they're talking about is the fact that. Voters don't care as much about abortion as the Democrats thought they would. The Democrats had stake, staked their midterms on the abortion, hoping that would drive voters to the polls. But what people really care about are the fact that the children they already have are starving to death because of inflation, right? And so part of this poll is they went and asked about major threats to democracy. And they, there's a list of things they asked people. Uh, is this a major or even a minor threat to democracy? And, then, you know, it was Donald Trump and the Democrats and the Supreme Court and the Republicans and everything, everything just about got 60% of people saying it was either a major or minor threat to democracy, right? Except for one, except for one. They asked about the mainstream media. 59% said it was a major threat to democracy, and 25% said it was a minor threat to democracy. I'm an English major, but that to me adds up to 84%. So this means the New York Times asked people, what's a threat to democracy? Everybody said, you, it's you. You know, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't even report this. It was kind of buried in the middle of the poll. This means that 84 out of every 100 people, right, out of every 100 people, 84 of them, are saying, you know, 16 of them, out of every 100 people, 16 of them are saying like, I don't know, I'm watching The Real Housewives. I don't see any threat. I haven't watched a news program in years. And the other 84% going, the evening news is on again, Maud, get me, me my rifle, you know, shooting the television set. This is like people just hate, they hate the press and the press is corrupt. And only 7% of people deeply, that is a Gallup poll, only 7% of people really trust the press. And I've been obviously talking about this ever since I've been talking about anything. I've been talking about the corruption of the press, which is the fact that it is biased toward the Democrats, which means it's biased toward corporations, which means it's biased biased to the deep state, which means instead of being the people who make the powerful uncomfortable, that's what they're supposed to do, right? They, instead of being those people, they are in fact now part of the power structure. And these effects, they're immediate effects, right? Inspires because the right feels that they're not being served by the information bearers, it, uh, contributes to a conspiratory, a conspiratorial a mindset on the right. We think, well, if we don't know what's happening, what is happening? You know, and we start to get conspiracy theories on the right, and we're angry because our views are not being represented in the press, because every time I turn on a late-night comedy show, I have to hear some millionaire in, insulting me. You know, that, that's not the way it used to be, because the media used to be a little bit more balanced. It was always liberal, but it was more balanced than this. And, and it leaves Democrats totally ignorant of why people— you know, oppose them. So they just assume that anyone who says, I don't like what you're doing, uh, must be hateful, mean, racist, all the things that the leaders tell them we are. So they have no idea when people, it is true. When people from the left come to the Daily Wire, every single one of them says, gee, everybody's so nice. 
You know, like, it's like, why, why wouldn't we be nice? They're always shocked at how uh, civilized, how intelligent, how much fun we're having and all this. And some people have actually, that's been the thing that has pushed them over the edge into changing sides when they just see that you're not, we're not who they told you we are. And so they are contributing on the one hand to this incredible, incredible anger and division in the country. The press, I think, is the source of that division and the the absolute corruption of the media, whether it's the news media or the Hollywood media or the academy, that is where the anger is coming from almost entirely. But it also means that there's all this stuff we don't know. I mean, stories that disappear. Who the hell killed Jeffrey Epstein? You know, no kidding. Really? You know, the cameras just happened to be off. The guards happened to be walking away. Ghislaine, Ghislaine, however you pronounce it, Maxwell goes on trial and nobody says to her, uh, you know, we'll give you a lesser sentence if you'll just hand over the names of the people who were on, you know, Pedophile Island. Uh, that, nobody does that at all. The Las Vegas shooting in the 2017, uh, 60 people are killed, 400 people are injured. We have no idea why the guy did it. No, no curiosity from the press. The press is going, hey, I'm a journalist. I don't cover news. What's wrong with you? I just sit here and tell you things about my opinions. You know, there was an FBI whistleblower on TV the other day who said this guy was working for Al-Qaeda or was at least inspired by Al-Qaeda. We don't know. You know, we have no way of knowing. Remember when Hunter Biden's laptop came out and something like 50 former intelligence uh, leaders came out and said, oh, that laptop, it's it's Russian, it's Russian misinformation, Russian misinformation. These included former CIA directors or acting directors, uh, John Brennan, Leon Panetta, General Michael Hayden, John McLaughlin, Michael Moreau. They said the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. They lied to protect a Democrat during an election. They lied to the American people. What does that mean the CIA was doing when those guys were in charge? If those guys are corrupt, corrupt enough to lie to the American people during an election, what were they doing when they were in charge? You know, it, but, but nobody, nobody in the journalism. I mean, these are the kind of questions when, in the brief period when I was a reporter. This is the kind of stuff we used to ask one another. What's going on here? What does this mean? Now there's like no curiosity whatsoever about it. The DOJ, the FBI, obviously deeply corrupt. Nobody's going to say anything because they're Democrats. So that means, you know, more power for the government and everything. And, you know, it's because they're owned. These companies are all owned by big corporations, some of them multinational corporations. Uh, You know, NBC, obviously, owned by Universal Comcast. So that's why they spiked the Harvey Weinstein story, because Weinstein's people got to their people out in Hollywood. ABC News is owned by Disney, and we know what they are. They are filled with, uh, you know, deviants who want to sell their deviancy to children. CBS is owned by Paramount. All of these are big corporations. And as I said last week, uh, most corporations have an interest in globalism. They're going to make more money if the trade is absolutely unfettered. And that aligns their interest with the activist attacking the family because the family is something that keeps countries in place. They attack nationalists. They say, oh, they're like fascists if you're a nationalist, uh, if you believe in your country, if you're a patriot, never mind nationalist, if you're a patriot, they attack you because their interests are aligned with those people because they destroy the structures that keep nations intact and therefore they serve globalism and therefore they put money in the pockets of corporations. So, On the one hand, I don't expect any of this to change. I think real change will only come when places like the Daily Wire uh, proliferate, when there are a lot of us, when we become bigger, when we threaten their audience, when we steal their audience, then maybe they'll start to reform. But you can't get too crazy with, uh, with despair. You can't give in to despair when you look at these things because there's always chinks in the armor. You know, the other day, just an anecdote, absolutely true. The other day I was talking to a guy who turned out to be an anti-Semite. 
And I always listen to people. You know, he's a stranger. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to yell at him. You know, I just wanted to hear what he had to say. And he says, oh, you know, the Jews, they're in control of everything. The Jews control everything. And they choose the American president. They choose the American president. And he had big conspiracy theories. And I said to him, that's interesting. They choose the American president. But Donald Trump, who did everything for Israel, the Israelis loved Donald Trump. He lost the election. So if the Jews are in control of our elections, how come Donald Trump lost? And he said, well, it's because he gave them everything so they didn't need him anymore. I thought, so in other words, there's no way of disproving this theory, right? Because it all just makes sense of everything. So even though it makes no sense whatsoever, he's not going to change his mind. So, so I feel the same way about the press, right? The press is monolithic. It's incredibly powerful. The mainstream media has one opinion, one opinion only, and they, the things they don't report and the things they do report are governed by that opinion, all on the left, all for pro-democracy, all pro-corporations, all pro-globalism. But, but, NBC killed the Harvey Weinstein story because uh, Weinstein's people got to their people in Hollywood. But Ronan Farrow was able to go to The New Yorker and get that story published, and then it became a big deal, and now Harvey is behind bars, right? So, so there, were, there are gaps in these things, and most of the gaps are low down on the ground. So I would like to put forward a modest proposal on how the press might reform itself on the ground, right? How the honest editor at the Wall Street Journal the honest uh, editor at the New York Times, if there is such a thing, if he hasn't been fired already. But at NBC, the guy who maybe is on the news desk, the guy who's on the news desk, desk at some of these places, here is just one thing they could do that would start to stop, start to put an end to some of this uh, corruption that has torn us all so much apart. Uh, get rid of the biased words. Start to look out for biased words. Propaganda words, words that have no truth value, but are just selling an idea. It's easier to do than you think. Just stop highlighting accusations of racism and sexism. They don't mean anything. If you're telling the truth, you're not a sexist. If you're telling the truth, you're not a racist. You may be a racist or a sexist, but the truth is simply the truth. Stop using all the phobia words because they're built-in lies. There's no such thing as Islamophobic. There is no, not one person in this country who thinks, you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of spiders and Islamic people. No, people had questions seeing all the violence that was coming out of Islam, the violence on Islamic borders with other people, the fact that they were at war with Christians, with atheists, with Hindus, with everybody, uh, and the fact that they were blowing, all the people who were blowing stuff up were Muslims. We know that there are millions and millions of lovely Muslim people. I meet them all the time, hardworking people, some people in America who just want to be Americans. We know that. But still, there was a perfectly fair question to be asked, still to be asked. Is that violence inherent in the philosophy or is it a cancer on the philosophy? That's the kind of thing you have to discuss openly. The minute you say somebody's phobic, you take away his agency. You basically say he's suffering from a mental condition. It's not true. No one is transphobic. We have questions. You, you know, I, I, I don't, first of all, I don't hate people who have problems with their gender identity. That's ridiculous. What I do feel is I feel that you cannot change your gender. It is scientifically impossible to change your gender. And it's offensive to women to say that a man who is carved his body into a woman's body or simply put on a skirt or simply wearing a cardigan uh, like Rachel Levine, it, it's insulting to women to say that's a woman, that he's had a woman's experience, that he is a woman. So, you know, we have questions about that. And we also don't want to be told how we talk to people, what, what pronouns we use. We don't want to lose our jobs because we don't agree with this sudden orthodoxy that's meant to support global corporatism. That's what it's there for in terms of a conspiracy of interest. There is no phobia. There's no homophobia. You know, being gay 
because the, the fight for black rights was successful, uh, they now identify, the left now identifies everybody as essentially black. But being gay is a, a behavior. It's something you do. It could be wrong. Being black can't be right or wrong. Let's face it. You can't be, it can't be right or wrong to be black. It's just the color of your skin. It's ridiculous. But it could be wrong to uh, have sex with a person of your own sex. And people should be allowed to make that argument without be call, being, being called names. I saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was where the Texas, I think it was, was trying to ban surgery on young people, transgender surgery on young people. And the Wall Street Journal, in the article, called it gender-affirming care. And I thought, no, that's the question. That is the question with of the article. Is it gender-affirming care or is it an atrocity beyond belief? So give it some neutral name. Give, you know, when they... When the left comes up with a clever tag for a bill, like the bill in Florida, don't say gay bill, don't use that. It's ridiculous. This is the kind of stuff you have to uh, redline it. Just call it the sex education bill or whatever. I, would, I wouldn't even use the term abortion rights. That always bothers me. The question, the question we're asking ourselves is, is there a right to kill an unborn child? Many of us think there's not. Many people think there is. Uh, you know, report on that. Report on the clash between those people. Stop using propaganda words. The press could do a lot. Just editors, editors on their desk could do a lot. Red penciling that stuff and also teaching these adolescent reporters who don't know anything in your newsrooms that they have that they've been taught to be woke instead of being taught to wake up. You know, there are two sides to every story. No one is absolutely certain which side is right. I guarantee this. Give us the news. Let the people decide. Break the, this this power that is tearing us apart. It's just a modest proposal on how to reform the press. Well, all this traveling, I haven't slept for days, but at least when I get home, I'll be able to not sleep on my Helix mattress because I never sleep anyway. Helix has several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, which I do when I do sleep. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. And for me, just one that's comfortable while you're lying awake. They also have a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress, because why would you buy a mattress that was made for someone else? Doesn't make sense. So if you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz, order the mattress that you're matched to, and wait for for the delivery, your mattress will come right to your door for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Couples fight about a lot of things. Your mattress doesn't need to be one of them. Sit down with your wife or husband. Go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Take the two-minute sleep quiz. Find the perfect mattress for you and your spouse. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free, and they'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. Their financing options and flexible payment plans make it so that a great night's sleep is never far away. For a limited time, Helix is offering up to 350 bucks off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. This is their best offer yet, so hurry over to helixsleep.com slash Clavin. When you lie awake now, you'll be able to say, how do you spell Clavin so I can get that great mattress? So before we reform the press, though, we want to be able to laugh at their corruption. And the one, one of the really great things when the polls turn against the Democrats, the press gets so hysterical that they just absolutely drop any pretense of fairness. So here's like the New York, a New York Times tweet uh, for a debate, a Wisconsin Senate debate between Ron Johnson and Mandela, Mandela Barnes. This is the New York Times says, Senator Johnson, a leading peddler of misinformation, 
will debate Lieutenant Governor Barnes, a liberal Democrat who has been touted as one of the party's rising stars. Can you, you know, if you look very carefully, you can detect just a slight, a slight bias. Even better was this guy, Chuck Johnson, who was at the, the first questioner at the Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp uh, debate in Georgia. Uh, here's Chuck Williams uh, asking the first question. Ms. Abrams, public opinion polls in our state show support for the right to abortion, Medicaid expansion, and banning assault weapons. You are on the side of public opinion in each of these issues, yet you are behind in almost every poll. Wow. <laughs> nothing biased about that. I love you so much, Stacey. Why don't people love you like I love you? What always gets me about this is that Republicans are never ready. They're never ready for the tough questions from utterly, utterly biased people. So, you know, you get in, you're talking about abortion and nobody turns, to, nobody ever in a debate turns to the Democrat and says, are you in favor of aborting a child because he has red hair, but you wanted a black hair? Are you in, in favor of the, uh, aborting a child because you wanted a girl and it's a boy? Are you in favor of aborting a child because he's going to be a Pisces and you, you know, you wanted a Taurus? Nobody ever asked that. But what they say is, you know, all right, a 12-year-old is raped by her father and now she's pregnant. Do you expect her to have that baby? And the GOP guy is always like, I, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what to do because they it's like they never rehearse. They never expect to be blindsided by the press who is trying to destroy them. A very uh, knowledgeable in, political insider once said to me, GOP will never win consistently until they realize they are running against the press. Well, that's what Donald Trump Understood, because when somebody asks you that question, uh, you know, a 12 year old girl's been raped and now she's pregnant. The answer is, well, you know, if you listen, if you really have to kill that child, I'll trade you. I'll trade you that child's life. If you want to kill it, if you want to kill that child, I will trade you that innocent child's life for all the others. Give me all the others, the 99.9 percent. And, you know, you want to sacrifice the child on the altar of your abortion love. The only the big exception, the big exception is this Carrie Lake. You know, is she is just amazing running for uh, governor of Arizona against yellow Katie Hobbs. We have to call her yellow Katie Hobbs because she won't debate uh, Carrie. She's surrounded by a bunch of reporters who come after her because she supported Trump and Trump's, you know, claim that the election was stolen from it. And they call her an election denier. And not only is she ready for the question, she's got a list of all the Democrats who have denied the results of an election. It's cut seven. This is outright Hillary Clinton. Trump is an illegitimate president. Is she an election denier? This one says, was the 2016 election legitimate? It now definitely is a question worth asking. That's the Los Angeles Times. So it's okay for Democrats to question elections, but it's not okay for Republicans. It's a crock of BS. Every one of you knows it. We have our freedom of speech, and we're not going to relinquish it to a bunch of fake news propagandists. If you want a copy of these, I'm sure that we're, Anthony would help you get a copy and help you learn how to be journalists, but look it up. So if you're into, you know, female over male uh, SM pornography... <laughs> Good watcher slap those guys around. But all it took is a little preparation, a little understanding that these people are, they're not the people's friend, they're not democracy's friend, they're not your friend, they're your enemy. So you gotta know what they're gonna, you know, gotta second guess them and come up with it. She had the paper right there on hand. I'm talking about this because Liz Trust, the 
contemporary <laughs> prime minister of England. She basically had time to walk across 10 Downing Street before they got rid of her. Six weeks, six weeks, uh, and she resigned. And just to show you, to, I, I want to highlight, you know, I love the Daily Wire, and I want to highlight our incredible coverage from the scene. We had a reporter right there on the scene, our own Michael Knowles, reporting from, the, from rainy London uh, about this. this. is Cut 23. Michael Knowles here. Uh, Liz Truss, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, has just resigned after only 44 days. This makes her the shortest reigning Prime Minister in uh, British history. And so, of course, the topic on everybody's mind is uh, now, when will Franz, the Duke of Bavaria, finally land to mount the uh, latest and final Jacobite rising? Uh, There is obviously a great opportunity here Uh, King Charles has not yet been coronated uh, with the British government now in absolute disarray. This is the perfect moment for the exiled Liechtensteinian heirs to King James II finally to come back and take over what is rightfully theirs, the United Kingdom. Michael Knowles reporting live from the 17th century. <laughs> just, where do you, you don't get this coverage everywhere. Subscribe to the Daily Wire today. We don't just cover the world. We cover the generations. We can go anywhere. Uh, here's Liz Truss announcing that she is out of leaving town. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. And this was because she put forward tax cuts, uh, you know, kind of Reagan-esque reforms, and the market and everybody just went insane and chased her out. Now, I just want to remind people, in case you don't remember, that uh, Margaret Thatcher proposed similar kinds of reforms to the economy in 1981 and Margaret Thatcher, there were riots. There were literally riots in the street and the press, the British media started to discuss the need for a policy U-turn. There was a policy, you know, that she wanted, they wanted a policy U-turn, lots of pressure, riots. And Margaret Thatcher made a famous speech when she says, U-turn if you want to, the ladies not for turning. That's a play on words from a famous play, uh, 1948 called The Ladies Not for Burning. Uh, that's leadership. That is leadership and leadership, uh, standing by your guns, making your decision ahead of time. You know, it's always every decision is two decisions, the decision and then the decision to stand by your decision. And Liz Truss did not make that decision. She started firing her aides, her ministers, and she just looked terrible. And she, you know, she was just thrown out right away. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. There was a recent piece in The New York Times, one of the actual few pieces in the New York Times, a former newspaper. And, you know, I want to be fair to the New York Times. I I only call them a former newspaper because they used to be a newspaper and they no longer are. Uh, But the New York Times ran a piece saying that uh, mass protests, people pouring in the streets like they are in Iran, used to be a grave threat to even the fiercest autocrat, but they've plummeted in effectiveness, a study shows, and factors appear to include polarization, social media, and rising nationalist attitudes. Now, I think they threw in the rising nationalist attitudes because they just want to blame that for everything. But it is true that when you had that massive truckers uh, protest in Canada to protest, you know, all the mandates and lockdowns from COVID, um, you know, they were able to hurt them at the bank by taking, just taking their money away, blocking uh, their 
their access to funding because of their opinions, which here I think would run into constitutional trouble. But who knows how long the Constitution, Constitution is just a piece of paper. It can't stand between us and this uh, tyrannical government if, if the people are not willing to stand uh, up against that government. But inflation is different. Inflation is different because inflation, remember, inflation is what destroyed the Weimar Republic and brought Hitler to power. Inflation is that when, you know, taxes are one thing because people basically, the people who get taxed are the upper middle class and the rich. Uh, you know, the lower classes don't get taxed, so they don't care so much. But inflation is a tax on everybody, and it lands on everybody the same. And, of course, it hurts the poor worst of all, because if, if everybody's getting taxed the same amount, then the, the uh, poor are getting absolutely blasted. So inflation comes from one thing. It comes from government spending. It comes from government printing money. That is where inflation comes from. And the U.S. can get away with this to some degree because our currency is the currency of the world, right? Uh, you know, so they can just print it to some degree, and it still remains good. It still remains good. But, you know, Kevin Sorbo, the actor, tweeted the other day, if they can print it, why do I have to pay taxes? And everybody, you know, yelled, oh, he's an actor, funny, he's an, he played Tarzan. What is he? You know, Kevin Sorbo is exactly right. We, why can they tax us if they're just going to print the money? The money doesn't mean anything. And the only reason people don't catch on to that is because the world is trading in our dollars. Uh, but ultimately, when you spend too much, Prices are going to go up. When you print too much money, prices are going to go up and people are going to get ticked off and throw you out of office. So, you know, what Liz Truss needs to do, what America needs to do, what our leaders need to do is they need to, they need to lead. And leading is not always doing what the people want you to do. See, what, what we have now is we have what our guest, uh, Emily Finley, who wrote this book about democratism, which I just finished reading uh, on the plane here, um, you know, she says what they're doing is they're saying, well, democracy is the people doing what we want them to do, essentially. You know, it's, it's, it's them following the will, the general will, which we will decide. We will decide what that is. But that's not my point. My point is this. The people always want the same thing, which you can tell from California, where they do almost have democracy because almost every bill gets voted on by the people. The people want stuff and they don't want to pay for it. And that just is going to happen over and over again. They're going to say, give us this. We like this. You gave us this. And now we want to keep it. But we don't want our taxes to go up. And you can't do that. You cannot do that. You know, make them pay for it with their own money. If the people get, if people who receive the benefit get taxed and don't feel like, oh, I'm stealing from Jeff Bezos, he'll never miss it, uh, which is basically corrupting to the body politic. But if they think, oh, this is going to raise my taxes, but now everybody will have better health care, they won't do it so much. So that's how you lead. You make sure that people understand the consequences of their actions. But of course, that is not something politicians like because it gets them voted out of office. So Liz Truss, I think what the things that she wanted to do would have worked, uh, but it doesn't matter if you don't stand up for it. And it doesn't matter if your economy is in the bag because you've been spending too much and you're just so far down the road that inflation is just going to go up and up and up. It's a very dangerous moment economically because Europe, America is probably protected because people use our currency, but Europe could actually collapse economically. And that is not a good thing for anybody. It's not going to be a good thing for anybody. We need our elites need to be changed out. And hopefully that'll happen as the older people die off. Uh, but but still, our elites need to be changed out. They have failed. They have failed at everything they do. Their brilliant ideas have failed. Their brilliant plans have failed. Their green new energy deal has failed. Everything they've done has failed. They need to be swept out of power. And I only hope we can do it at the vote at the polling booth, because if not, things are going to get very ugly. 
Now, I'm not getting any younger, and it's probably doubtful I'll get any older, too, at this point. But if you're like me and the number of birthday candles keeps going up and you don't have life insurance policy yet, check out Fabric. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable-term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Life insurance can have a bad rap for being complicated. Not with Fabric. They make it easy to apply with a seamless digital experience. It's all online and on your time. And if you need extra support, Fabric's team of licensed and insurance agents can answer questions along the way. It takes less than 10 minutes to apply, see your quote, and then personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. You could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. With over 1,600 five-star reviews on Trustpilot.com, you can feel confident that you're getting a high-quality policy that is perfect for your family. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Fabric was specifically designed to give parents like you affordable term life insurance plus wills, access to college savings funds, and more tools to help protect your family's financial future, all in an easy online experience. Protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash Clavin. That's meetfabric.com slash Clavin, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash Clavin. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And you have to know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. There are no E's in Clavin. So basically what's happened here is the polls are showing that it looks like, it looks like abortion is not enough to bring people uh, out to vote for Democrats if they're starving, if they're people, if their kids are starving, they can't put food on the table. And so now they're going to change their strategy, right? And by the way, these polls are still, it's still a very close race. So if you're yelling at the TV, but you don't go out and vote, it's your fault. You got to get out there and vote, put your vote down, you know, vote for the people you think you want in office that are going to change this because things are really bad. I mean, they really are. But now the, dem- the left is changing a strategy. And if you want to know what the new strategy of the left is going to be. All you got to do is go on the opinion page of the New York Times, or as we call it, Knucklehead Row. Now, one of the chief knuckleheads on Knucklehead Row is the most aptly named uh, journalist in the country, Charles Blow, because he actually blows. And he uh, has written a column called The Battle Between Pocketbooks and principles. Now, you know, when the left says principles, they mean stuff they like. And here's what Charles Blow blows. He says, you are never in the voting booth alone. You bring with you your hopes and fears, your expectations and your disappointments, your choices made through a maze of considerations. It's almost poetry, isn't it? But it hinges primarily on how the candidates, their principles and their party line up with your worldview. Would they, if elected, represent and promote the kind of community and country you want to live in? Are they on your side fighting for you and the people like you. You know, it's such, this, all, every word of this is untrue. You're in the, you are in the voting booth alone, and you're there to hire someone to run stuff for you, not to be an incompetent buffoon, right? It's a job market. That's what it is. You're the guy hiring the people to represent you and run the country. Here he goes on. Often the things that are top of mind as you consider those questions are urgent and in, imminent, 
rather than ambient and situational. Issues like the economy, for instance, will almost always take top billing since they affect the most people most directly. Anger of abortion can also be potent, and in some races it may determine the outcome, but it is a narrower issue. First, no person assigned male at birth will ever have to personally wrestle with a choice to receive. This is a great sentence. Listen to the sentence. No person assigned male at birth will ever have to personally wrestle with a choice to receive an abortion or deal with health complication from a pregnancy that might necessitate an abortion. That sentence could be reduced to four words. Men can't get pregnant. F in English, Charles Blow. And he says, I have seen repeatedly how people abandon their principles, whether they be voting rights, transgender issues, gun control, police reform, civil rights, climate change, when their pocketbooks suffer. All you care about is money. He's offended. People want to eat. Let them eat cake. (laughs) But this this is not just Charles Blow. This is all over. Here is one of America's premier intellectuals, Joy Behar of The View. Well, what's depressing is that the New York Times released a poll today that says that 71% of voters agree that democracy is under threat. Yeah. But only 7% of voters uh, rank a threat to democracy as a major issue this election cycle. Yeah. I find that so depressing, I can't begin to tell you. That's why I don't like polls. Well, (laughs) Well, it it is depressing. You can debate the poll, but this is what people are saying. I mean, I understand. Inflation has gotten people, if you can't put food on the table, it's Mm -hmm. very depressing. And if you can't put gas in your car and, and, you know, and inflation and rents and everything else is piling up because of various reasons. You know, one of them is is the pandemic. Another one is maybe the war in Iraq, in um, Ukraine. Yeah. But, But to think that the other party is going to be able to solve those problems is really ludicrous. Let them eat cake. <laughs> so, say they got a problem. People, are, you know, are maybe angry. Democrats are angry about abortion. That might bring them to the polls. Uh, but they want to feed their families. So Mike Barnacle on Morning Joe asked Stacey Abrams, another one of our great intellectuals, about this. And her reply is, in my mind, an act of leftist genius. Here's what she said. While abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? But let's be clear. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. (laughs) It's perfect. She figured it out. Kill your babies and then you won't have to feed them. Right. And then the babies don't eat so much. You can nurse the babies, you know, your teenagers go after the teenagers. I mean, come on. It's a perfect solution. Kill them. That's the way. Now you don't have to worry about inflation and you get your abortion rights in one blow. I mean, it really is Democrat principle. You know, it's funny because they keep talking about how Donald Trump's selections you know, of candidates have really hurt the Republicans, by which they mean Herschel Walker, because J.D. Vance is moving up. Uh, you know, Oz is moving up. These guys, you know, are doing better because they can't. Nobody ever talks about how bad their candidates are, especially Joe Biden. Anyway, you know, there is one way in which this uh, this clash between principles and pocketbooks uh, is 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 true. Right. I wish people voted 
to stop abortion. I wish people voted to get rid of this transgender butchery that's going on. I wish people were driven by the fact that children in schools are being taught uh, to go to the Rainbow Club instead of the, the you know, the um, Woodwork Club or something like this. There's something really deeply sick and perverse about that. But people are more driven by their pocketbooks. The first thing the government has to do is run well. The first thing you want is competence. This is the one place, this is the one place where Republicans have a, a slight natural advantage, right? Because the government wants to grow. People in power want more power, and we're asking them to take less. We're asking them to make the government smaller, and people want to feel virtuous, so they do stupid stuff. People are envious of the rich, so they're willing to rob them. They're willing to take their money away. That's why the Democrats do so well. But the one thing about leftism is it doesn't work, and that is it doesn't work. It always leads to financial disaster, and that is the one thing we have going for us. This is God telling us that he wants those right-wing policies in place because— because the left destroys everything they touch. So what are your family's values? Faith, church on Sunday, does your family believe in serving? Did you vaccinate your kids or say, I don't think so? How does your family define men and women? What kind of value do they put on life? Your children look to you to define their values and their perspectives of the world, but what if you weren't here to do that for them? In the event that you die, who will ensure the values you hold dear are upheld by your kids? Epic Will can help. A will lets you determine who will raise your kids in the event you die before you're done raising them. This is a big deal, and it's your responsibility as a parent. It's why we at The Daily Wire have partnered with Epic Will. Take five minutes today. Go to epicwill.com and use promo code CLAVEN to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package, but more importantly, so that I know you did it, so that you are accountable to me. EpicWill.com, promo code Claven. It's spelled, as always, K-L-A-V-A-N. You don't just want to hand down the things you've earned. You want to hand down the things you know. Go to EpicWill.com, promo code Claven. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. So that was Tulsi Gabbard, the former uh, congresswoman, former presidential candidate, now former Democrat, and the host of the Tulsi Gabbard Show. And this, too, is Tulsi Gabbard. So it's so nice to see you. It's good to see you. Thank Glad you to be here coming. with you. So you gave a long laundry list of reasons yeah. you left the Democrat Party. Was there one thing that pushed you over the edge? It had been something building over time. Uh, seeing the the policies and the actions, the decisions that, you know, the the so-called woke ideologues within the Biden administration, within Congress, within the leaders of the Democrat Party had been pushing, uh, especially over the last few years, 
Ultimately, the foundational problem with what they're doing is they're against the Constitution. They are actively undermining our God-given rights and freedoms enshrined in the Constitution. It's not enough for them to say, hey, Tulsi, you know, we disagree with you on this or that issue. Agree to disagree and let's move on to the next. For myself and for anyone who dares to challenge or even question uh, what they're doing, their narrative, their proposals, they seek to silence us, to smear us, to, you know, a character assassination uh, and, and completely cancel us. The once big inclusive tent of the Democratic Party that celebrated freedom of speech, even the most abhorrent, terrible speech, is gone. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was the thing that ultimately uh, made me decide to leave the party. How can I be associated with a party that's against freedom? Yeah, no, it's 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 strange. It's strange. It is Democrats supporting big corporations and exactly against freedom of speech. It's it's odd. And working, I mean, working directly with big tech people in our government, yeah. working with big tech to to kind of back channel their efforts to silence very specific voices uh, in this marketplace of ideas that should be robust. Right. We are stronger when it's more robust when we have discussions and dialogue about different things but directly trying to silence people who disagree with them or, or dare to challenge their, uh, their position. So what do you do now? I mean, you're in Hawaii. They don't, I don't even think they let you onto the islands of Hawaii if you're not a Democrat. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> so so where, where do you go? I mean, uh, I mean Hawaii is my home. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to spending the next few weeks traveling across the country, frankly, uh, helping support great candidates who are committed to upholding the Constitution, uh, committed to protecting our freedoms, and I think most importantly, put the interests of the American people in our country first. You know, permanent Washington is this place I worked for eight years as a member of Congress, was exposed to kind of the dark underbelly of um, those who care more about their own political power than they do about the people that they've been sent there to serve. And so uh, this is a pivotal election. It's important that we have a check and balance on the executive branch, which we do not have right now. Yeah. And so getting people elected to the House of Representatives and to the Senate, even key governor's races, is essential for us to stop, uh, at a minimum, stop the, the insane direction that the Biden administration is taking us into that's threatening our safety, our security, our freedom in the future for our kids. So one of the things, it's always been a little hard to pin you down in terms of, uh, put it has in the been. box of where you are, yes. Republican Democrat. That's when been I, the case for the last twenty years, by the way. <laughs> yes. I, well, I, I, look, I think that we need that kind of yeah. voice. But you mentioned uh, nuclear war. You mentioned yeah. that they're moving us to nuclear war, and you've always had this has always been a big thing with you. It's one place where you've always stood. Yeah. Um, you don't like war. I don't like war either, but yeah. I think sometimes it's it's necessary. I agree. You've been accused of isolationism, mm -hmm. and. And there is, well, let me ask you first, where, where do you stand on Ukraine? What should we be doing in Ukraine? President Biden should be exercising his position and leadership to uh, support a negotiated end to that war. I think it is absolutely atrocious that back, all the way back in March of this year, shortly after Putin invaded Ukraine, which is obviously wrong, uh, Russian, Russian representatives, Ukrainian representatives were sitting across from each other at a table trying to negotiate uh, some kind of an agreement to end that conflict and end that war. And it was the Biden administration and others who were actively telling Zelensky and the Ukrainians, leave, don't, don't negotiate an outcome to this. 
And so the continued death and suffering and destruction that we're seeing as a result of this war that has only continued to escalate to this point, tens of billions of American taxpayer dollars being sent there, pushing us to the brink of a potential risk of nuclear war that puts not just the people of Ukraine at risk, but the American people and people around the world. This is on the hands of President Biden and his administration. Uh, supporting a negotiated end to this war was the best possible thing to do for the Ukrainian people, and it's what he should be doing right now, but is not. People who take your stance, not just with Ukraine, but in general, get hit sometimes for seeming to support bad guys. I mean, you know, I'm a, a fan of Tucker Carlson. I love the guy. But, you know, when he talks about Ukraine, he makes it sound like Putin is not as bad as he is. And Putin is a bad guy. He's a, he's a rotten guy. You got hit I agree. For, for sitting down with Assad. I mean, you've been, you know, attacked for that. Um, is there some place where war is actually a necessity? Is there sure. Some, what, how would you define that, or at least vaguely? Look, I, I continue to serve in, in the United States Army right. Reserves. I'm a lieutenant colonel, a civil affairs officer, and recognize that there is a need to have a strong and ready, capable military to protect the freedom and security of the American people. When there is a threat on the United States and the American people, that is what our military exists for. Uh, I'm not a pacifist or an isolationist. I just believe we need to honor the service and sacrifice of our men and women in uniform by sending them on missions that fulfill that purpose of why we serve. And rather than uh, see the only way we can relate with other countries, even those we have differences with, as being uh, waging economic warfare or actual kinetic warfare, there are other ways for us to be able to engage and exercise our leadership with other countries around the world that seeks to find those areas of cooperation rather than immediately um, coming in as the big bully with the stick, saying, you must go along with us or else. That's not a way that we can build relationships with people, colleagues, friends, just in everyday life. And it's not a constructive way to exercise our values and our principles and leadership as a country around the world. Yeah, no, it, it is a, a real problem because you do have isolationists and you, the way uh, politics works in this country, you get stuck on one side or, or the other. And it, does, it is frightening when a guy like Putin feels he can march into a country, even though we made mistakes that may have uh, threatened him and all that. It's just, there's something about that that just gets right up, yeah. gets right up your spine. Yeah, of course. And again, I think... I think in these situations, and as we look at our foreign policy as a whole, uh, we need to figure out as the United States how we can best project our leadership and our values in a way that's consistent with the things that we say we stand for, freedom and democracy and so forth here at home. And again, be that, exercise that leadership that President JFK exercised, that President Ronald Reagan exercised of recognizing uh, that we live in a, a world of reality and be pragmatic about it and not in a, in a fantasy world where the United States thinks that we can go and, you know, build little mini Americas in other countries, impose uh, our values and, and what we stand for on them, pick which dictators we want to overthrow and which dictators we want to support, which is the reality of our, of our history and foreign policy. Uh, but, but again, uh, recognize the world that exists and exercise our leadership uh, towards one that allows for mutual peace and prosperity. Uh, that's the direction that we should be headed in. So the thing that I keep thinking about is, as I'm talking to you is where, where do you fit in? I mean, because ultimately you need a party, you need a play. If you're going to be in politics, if you're going to stay in politics, you need some place to, 
to rest. Now, you're going off from here to join Matt Walsh at his uh, demonstrate, what is a woman demonstration? And that's, a, that's something that's become weirdly, bizarrely central to Democrat policy, yeah. uh, you know, supporting the kinds of atrocities that Matt is standing up against. But at the same time, you've been steadily supportive of, you were steadily supportive of Roe v. Wade. And then you endorse uh, Carrie Lake, uh, who is a pro-life. You know, how do you, how do you pick and choose which, which way you're going to go? How do you find a place where you can say, this is who I am to people, and they say, oh, I recognize that position? Oh, I, I've always been an independent-minded person right. uh, from when I first ran for the state house in Hawaii uh, back in 2002. And while I've been a Democrat over the last 20 years until recently, I've always been an independent-minded Democrat and always uh, done my best to try to uh, look at issues and look at policies in a way that best serves the interests of um, the American people, that works for the well-being of the American people. And you're right, it's been uh, all throughout this time, people are like, well, which team are you really on? (laughs) I got a problem with teams because I feel like we need more leaders who will vote based on their conscience and based on their principles and values, regardless of their political party. I've always, you know, as, as I was vice chair of the DNC, and I used to go to these different DNC events where speakers would get up and say, vote blue no matter who. And I never, I could never get down with that because I think it's ridiculous, and I think it, it, um, it is very condescending in thinking the American people and voters are reduced to that blind partisanship, saying we don't want you to think for yourself, we don't really want you to look at the candidates and what they stand for and what their positions are. We just want you to look at are you team blue or team red, team D or team R, left versus right. Uh, when I think most Americans, and the polls uh, recognize this, most Americans, maybe there are some issues they agree with that are the quote-unquote left, maybe some issues on the right they agree with, quote-unquote, uh, on the right, but uh, really they are interested in, in uh, what is best for their families, uh, how they can grow up, you know, raise their kids in safe communities, how they can have a say in their kids' education. And that's where this issue, this, this question that Matt Walsh, his documentary was awesome, what is a woman— um, how how do you put that into one box or another? Because it is central to biology and really the deeper issue of truth. Yeah. And this is the big problem, and I talked about this before, but this is the big problem with the position that, that the Democrat Party leaders have taken is they reject the idea that there is such a thing as, an, as objective truth. And once you get rid of that, where are the boundaries? Where is your foundation? Uh, there is none. And so, therefore, they can go anywhere and claim anything as the truth. And then when you push the force of law behind them when they are in power, we end up in a really dangerous place as a country. Yeah, no, no question about that. You know, you're, I was on Twitter when your, uh, when your announcement came out. The first, Bless your heart for that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to be there. Yeah, right. Somebody's got to brave the, the mosh pit. Um, the first reaction that I saw, first Absolute first thing was, she's running. Are you? Are you running for president? I'm not, I'm not even thinking about You're it. Not even thinking no, about I'm not. Uh, and the reason is because uh, we've got a big election right here before us. And we are, and, and I speak about this from a really personal place, when I say that we need to be aware of and pressuring our leaders to confront the fact that we are closer to the precipice of nuclear Holocaust now than ever before. Uh, We went through this in Hawaii in January of 2018 when, uh, you remember, we had this 
text alert that went out on, on you know, over a million phones yeah. across the state at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning saying, ballistic missile inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. This is not a drill. And, and in those minutes, after getting that message, um, chaos broke out. Uh, you know, college kids sprinting across campus trying to figure out, seek immediate shelter, where do we go? Families, uh, parents trying to decide, like, which of my children, one's here and one's there, which of them do I want to spend the last minutes of my life with? Unimaginable things that, that you know, I, I know a parent would never have to be, want to be confronted with. But that was the reality that we went through uh, during the minutes that that alert went out, thinking that I just got minutes to live. How am I going to spend those last minutes of my life? And our leaders have failed us to put us in this position where this is a possible reality that we face then and we face now. And there's no shelter. There's nowhere to go. You know, fancy politicians may have their bunkers and they do to be protected in this situation or they can continue to wage war from those bunkers. But the rest of us in this country, we got no place to go. And so it's, it to me, to, to even have a conversation about 2024 is kind of crazy when we really are in a place where it's, we don't know what will happen in the next week or in the next month should things continue to escalate between Russia, Ukraine, and Europe uh, in a direction that, that we are headed. And this is why I'm sounding the alarm everywhere I go, because we need our president to do his job. Yeah. Uh, I've only got a minute, but I want to ask you about the Tulsi Gabbard show. You're becoming a podcaster, and shame on you. We're <laughs> or a low group of people, but what, what is this going to be about? Yeah, thank you. And why um, are you doing it? I, I'm doing it because I have found myself, I started this podcast, Tulsi Gabbard Show, because, uh, you know, every time I get invited to go and do an interview on, you know, cable TV, I, I was asked, how much time do I have? They're like, well, you got four minutes or four and a half minutes <laughs> uh-huh. uh, to talk about nuclear war or to talk about, you know, uh, the threats to rule of law. Like, gosh, so I'm writing my notes and trying to figure out what do I want to say. I end up with pages of notes that I have to distill down to, you know, like one point that I want to get across. And uh, so, you know, having, having a, a platform that allows me to share my views and perspectives in an unfiltered way, um, and then also have really interesting conversations with guests, uh, is, is um, this, this creates that opportunity. And to help engage and start these discussions with people who are looking for more than just a soundbite that they're getting on cable news or on social media. Great. The Tulsi Gabbard Show, don't hang out with other podcasters. Take my word for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was lovely to meet you, and I thank you thank so much you. for coming. You can come back anytime. I appreciate that. Thanks. Chain stores have different tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, but rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody. You don't care. You just want the women, right? They get the women by saying rockauto.com. Because when you say rockauto.com, women hear, it's like a dog whistle. Women show up out of nowhere. Not just because it sounds so cool to say rockauto.com, but because women know you know where to get auto parts. You get them online at an easy-to-use catalog that has low, reliably low prices, and and you get to say rockauto.com. Rockauto.com is a family-owned business serving auto parts customers online. For 20 years, go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers and 
to get dates. RockAuto.com won't give you the dates, but the women will just show up because they know you know that RockAuto.com has everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet at reliably low prices with an easy-to-use catalog. Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck and right Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know I sent you and write it the same way, with the same feel, that same, you know, incredible, virile feelings. A K-L-A-V-A-N. All right, let's take a break for the weather report. Liberal tears have been falling all over the country in Illinois and Florida for Matt Walsh's What is a Woman campus tour in Washington, D.C. at the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And with Election Day on the horizon, we can expect 2022 to be one of the wettest years on record. That's why. For the very first time, we're making the iconic Daily Wire Leftist Tears Tumblr available to all. Forged in the fires of the hottest takes, this magnificent vessel is now just 30 bucks. Don't miss out on the heavy tear fall. Get your Leftist Tears Tumblr right now on dailywire.com slash Tumblr. So I want to talk a little bit about this conference I was at in, in Florence, uh, Italy. And I can't tell you any of the people who were there or the things they discussed because it was a place for people to get together and speak safely without being canceled and without losing their jobs and without having the things happen to you that now happen when you have an intellectual uh, discussion. There was nothing evil, not one, not one word that could be misconstrued as evil except uh, by the left because anybody who disagrees with the left is evil. Uh, but, you know, I want to respect the privacy. But one of the things that they also did with this in, with all these discussions is they gave us some very nice little junket perks, you know, where they, for instance, uh, gave us a private tour of the Uffizi Gallery, one of the most beautiful galleries in the world, one of the most beautiful art galleries in the world, one of the most popular too. And after it was closed, they brought us down there. Uh, They had a trio of absolutely gorgeous Italian women playing Bach uh, as a string trio uh, in front of the statue of the Laocoon. I don't know if you've ever seen the Laocoon, but they were sitting there playing that. there's There's nothing sexier in this world than a beautiful woman playing a string instrument. But it really, the whole atmosphere reminded me of a, a great uh, short story by Henry James from which I stole the, I, I cadged the title of my memoir, The Great Good Thing. The story is called The Great Good Place. And it's about a dream of heaven where people just go around communing with each other. Men go around communing with each other and discussing ideas in this kind of classical setting with pillars and old statues. Uh, and it, it really does remind me, did remind me of that. It was very beautiful. Um, but, you know, this, the Uffizi houses some of the most beautiful paintings of the Renaissance, Raphael and Botticelli and Michelangelo. And every time I go into one of these museums these days, I have this sense of loss. I mean, I love these paintings. I love Renaissance paintings. And I have the sense that something has gone out of the world, some human thing has gone out of the world with the age of great paintings. Uh, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but I, because this really weighed on me and, and uh, filled my head as I was uh, having these conversations and having this beautiful time and this beautiful setting, uh, I just want to go over some of the paintings, some of the things I saw. And if you're just listening and you can't see them, don't worry, I will describe them. But one of the first paintings uh, we came to see, and we got this wonderful private tour, it was just an amazing experience, uh, was, was this Giotto Madonna. Uh, which is from around 1306. And it's Madonna on her throne, surrounded by angels and the baby Jesus on her lap. But, you know, it's not very human. 1306 is really before the full-fledged uh, Renaissance begins. And so, it, it, you know, she's she's almost a, a statue of a, of a goddess. Uh, she's got the the 
blue mantle that became a sign of Mary's uh, royalty. But but she looks like she's just above human uh, experience. She's just enormous. Uh, all the angels around her are smaller. They're little. They all have tremendous gold halos. The baby Jesus looks like uh, he's a grown man. He's already preaching. Uh, and and so you know it's it's kind of it's kind of separates these people from the ordinary person. And that was very common because this was something above humanity almost. Um, but but then you know you look on. You go a little further, and you think to yourself. Did they begin to humanize the paintings of the Holy Family because they changed, they became more humanist, or did they do it because they had the technique to do it? Maybe Giotto didn't know how to paint as realistically as the people who came after. And was it the painting that drove the humanism, or was it the humanism that drove the painting? It's it's hard to know. 150 years later, you have Filippo Lippi, uh, his Madonna, which is just, I mean, it's so gorgeous. So you should go on and look at it, uh, Google Filippo Lippi, Madonna, Uffizi. And uh, she's, she's just this beautiful woman with two angels holding the baby up. The baby is much more of a realistic baby. She's entirely a beautiful woman, an absolutely gorgeous woman, but a, a woman. And a real woman, and the, there is a halo, but it's just suggested. It's just a kind of ring behind her. So she's this is a person, and she has a very sad look on her face. She's not a kind of stern a statue like in the Giotto, uh, but she has a sad look on her face because she's clearly contemplating what this life that has come out of her body is going to go through and what it's going to mean. And just as a kind of um, uh, kind of comical thing. One of the angels <laughs> holding up the child is just an imp, you know, a little like just looks like a, a totally realistic, um, uh, totally realistic little boy uh, who looks like he's full of mischief. And that was apparently the Filippo Lippi's son who was posing for this. So he just <laughs> paints his son with this kind of like, you know, look at me. Uh, I'm holding up the baby Jesus look on his face, which is really something else. Um, but there's, but the tender, sad look on her is human, you know, and the child is more childlike, reaching for his mom. And so the, the Madonna is being depicted as what she was, one of us, a human being. And, uh, you know, my Catholic friends and I disagree on uh, some of the doctrines about Mary, and sometimes that upsets people, which I'm, I'm very sorry about, because I think that the Catholics are trying to express their devotion and their awe of this woman who in some way has done the ultimate human act. She has taken God in and given God out in flesh. She's taken God in in spirit and given God out in the flesh. And that's what all of us do when our lives are working rightly. We are taking God in and giving him out in the flesh. It's because, you know, Jesus said, I, you, I want you to be a branch on my vine. In other words, the fruit that we bear is given to us by the vine, by God. It's not, it doesn't come out of us. It comes from above into us, and then we produce it. So all of us are supposed to act like the Madonna. But, you know, I, that, that's, but still, to me, she's just fully human being, uh, and the Catholics believe that too, and that's what is captured. And when you do that, when you connect a human being with these godly things, you're essentially saying to every mother, uh, you're saying you are part of something beyond yourself. You know, you're not just a body. You're also part of this incredible movement of the spheres, an incredible movement beyond human life that is going on in heaven. You are imitating that in the world, and it is, you know, pouring itself into you, and you represent that. And that's a different way to live as a human being, as a reference to something beyond yourself. Filippo Lippi, who painted this, was a friar, and his apprentice was Botticelli, uh, and his uh, Primavera is probably the greatest work in the museum. Uh, it's got so many, it, must, 
be a very expensive painting because it's got, I'm counting four, five, six, seven, eight, nine uh, figures in it, which is a lot of figures. And uh, they said to us that it is a, uh, a wedding gift and it represents, it's supposed to be read, I think, from right to left. Uh, there is a, a, a zephyr, which is a wind, uh, is capturing this girl on the far right, uh, Chloris, uh, Chlory, her name is, or Chlor- Chloris in Greek. And um, he, he rapes her, essentially, and makes her pregnant. And she goes through a metamorphosis where she becomes, um, she becomes Flora, the personification of spring. And you see her, the vine starts to come out of her mouth, and then the next figure over is Flora, and the next figure in the center is Venus, uh, very beautiful. And then there are the three graces, and uh, Eros, Cupid, is up in the sky shooting at one of the graces. Uh, he's going to infuse her with love, probably one of the virgin graces is going to infuse her with love. So this is all representing wedding. Uh, and on the side is, uh, is, is Mercury, who is um, keeping the clouds away. He's keeping the clouds away so it will be beautiful. The weather will remain beautiful. It will be spring. Primavera means spring, obviously. And, um, and so again, you're seeing human beings. They're, they're human figures. This is the thing I love about painting. I love about this painting specifically. They're human beings, but they are connected to something, to meaning. They're connected to meaning outside themselves, right? And ultimately, I mean, I think that... Um, that that this this gives I don't know it gives us a kind of dignity a kind of importance in the world uh, that you lose when you're just connected to yourself and that's the final one I just want to show you is the Raphael Madonna which brings us to just un- incredible uh, heights of of perfection uh, this this Madonna with this beautiful beautiful tenderness she's with uh, the baby John the Baptist and the baby Jesus on her lap and she's got this movement of uh, beautiful affection for John as she's putting her hand on her back she's got a book in her hand where she's probably reading the beginning of Luke which tells her story which I know doesn't make any sense but is a way of showing that she is the symbol of wisdom uh, and she is so incredibly beautiful and has that same sadness in her face and you see John is handing um, a, a finch uh, I believe it is to the baby Jesus, and the finch was a, a symbol of the um, a, a, a symbol of the passion, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so she has this look of sadness as she sees her baby uh, being handed his death, uh, and John is handing his death to the baby. The most touching thing about it is Jesus is accepting the bird uh, and so accepting what's going to happen to him. And when you lose this faith that you are connected to something beyond yourself, and this is what happened at the end of the Middle Ages uh, as the humanism, as we became more and more human, uh, then the only thing to talk about is yourself. This was what C.S. Lewis called um, the great movement of internalization, where all the motivating uh, force was come from within yourself. Uh, sex was a motivating force. Money, greed, envy were in- motivating forces, but nothing outside yourself. You didn't represent anything. It was just all you. And then that means that everything, that even the shape of things comes from you. It's kind of an illusion. Instead of saying what I would say, that it is participation. I'll talk about that in just a minute. It's all an illusion. And so painters shouldn't paint representationally. And that's where you get Jackson Pollock, which I believe is garbage. I believe it's absolute garbage. I would rather look at a video game than look at a Jackson Pollock uh, because it is just saying what you see is just an illusion. It has no meaning. So this was what I talked about. Uh, you know, I had to give, we all had to give little speeches at this uh, at place. And what I talked about was uh, what, what Owen Barfield called participation, which is just the fact that we, the things that we see are real. They're real. A rainbow is real. Uh, uh, the music that we hear is real. And of course, without the human ear to hear music, 
It's not music. There's no music there. It's just air moving around and strings moving around. But when the human ear hears it, it becomes a you know, Mozart's Hofner serenade. And then it's it's gorgeous and it's real. And these these things are real. And my point was that I was, because I was talking to a bunch of scientists mostly. I mean, I have very few uh, people there like me who were in the arts. I, I think I was the only one who was actually representing the arts. Uh, but I pointed out that like everything, this is called what Owen Barfield called participation, us uh, creating the music that is being played and the music isn't there unless we're there to hear it. And yet the music is real. But my point that I was making is that there's no place where consciousness and reality diverge. All the things that the scientists are talking about, even mathematics, are inventions of the human mind. There is no such thing as a two, right? But when you use numbers, uh, they, they do marvelous things in reality because numbers are real. They're participation. We create them, but they're real. And my... My point about this was that, uh, my central point about it was that the West, what we think of Western civilization, what we think of Christianity, uh, Christendom, uh, begins with an act of participation, which is Moses looking at the burning bush and he hears the words, I am. And do those words exist unless Moses hears them? Well, no, but what the burning bush is, is the burning bush is Moses seeing the world as a place that blossoms and burns, but is always there. And when he sees that, when he has that vision of this world that creates and destroys but never disappears, he hears the voice of personal identity. I am. I am that I am. I am the I am. You know, And he hears that and he realizes that the, the universe is made from a personal identity. The universe speaks to him of a personal identity. And his identity is an image of that identity. Just like the rainbow is an image that he sees in the eye, his identity is, um, is an image of that. He is made in the image of God. We lose the arguments with our philosophical enemies, the philosophical enemies of the West, because this is what we don't get, right? The left tells us, they say, your identity is a performance. Your gender is a construct. Your culture is based on a fiction of natural rights. There are no natural rights. You can cut open a man, uh, as Yuval Harari says, you can cut open a man, you'll find gore and, and guts, but you won't find any natural rights. There are no, it's a fiction, they say. So gender is a construct, identity is a performance, uh, natural rights are a fiction. And we, we get all up in arms and, you know, we say this is an atrocity, but they're half right. They are constructs. They are performances. They are fictions. What they don't understand is that they are performances and uh, fictions and constructs that represent something true. They're participation, just like a rainbow, just like music. They are real, but they exist in the human mind. The human mind brings them into being, just like we bring music into being, just like we brought those incredible paintings into being, just like you bring your love for your children and your wife and your husband into being. Those things are real. And that is, and you know, they represent you know, your maleness and your femaleness, they represent the male and female image of God and yourself represents something, your soul. And, uh, and the, this, this culture of freedom represents the dignity and prerogatives that individuals have because each one of them is unique in what he creates out of himself. And they make sense because they're based on something that's true. That's what we've lost. Yes, we've made wonderful scientific strides, but that's what we lost when we uh, stepped out of the Middle Ages into the modern world. And that's what we have to do is find that again in a new way, in a modern way for a new age. All right, I cannot believe that I'm still making sense. I'm so exhausted. And I hope each and every one of you are thinking, wow, this is a heroic effort, so heroic that I will reward it by going out and ordering A Strange Habit of Mind, which publishes in four days, but you can pre-order it now and you will love it. And you will say to yourself, gee, not only did I have a great reading experience, but I have supported some of the best cultural work 
on the right and made a difference by making it into a series. How beautiful will that be? Uh, just incredible. I can't even begin to tell you what that's going to look like. Um, but however, that all that said, for those of you who are not subscribers to The Daily Wire, <laughs> what a shame. You are going to be plunged early into the Clavenless week, uh, into a kind of darkness that you can't even begin to imagine. But but just to show you we love you, even though you don't subscribe, before we go into that weekend, we are going to solve all your problems with the mailbag. No, they're by 16 there. I've already gone in for you and a lot more grass. Yeah! <laughs> uh, that's the President of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. From Itachi, dear Supreme Overlord and Grandmaster, we got to see on Sunday special how Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro met and formed the Daily Wire. All great heroes have an origin story. How did sexy Gandalf come from an author and Hollywood screenwriter to join Daily Wire? Thank you for all you do. Uh, that's actually, uh, all right. Uh, you know, I don't think I've, I've quite told that story. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I have. Anyway, um, you know, while I was getting blacklisted from Hollywood, but hadn't been quite blacklisted from Hollywood, a friend of mine named Roger Simon, who I sometimes think of as mini-me because, like me, he is bald, a mystery writer, a guy who worked in Hollywood, but he's a lot shorter than I am. Uh, and um, he, I would keep bumping into him in bars in Hollywood, and he would say, I'm starting this new thing called PJ Media, and I want you to be part of it. And uh, so finally I looked and Bill Whittle was on and uh, I, I, you know, Bill Whittle and I pick at each other all the time, but I love Bill and he was doing a great job. And, and I said, you know, uh, I said to Roger, okay, I've never wanted to be in camera in, in my life. Never, ever, ever wanted to be on camera. I loved being a writer. I loved being locked in a room by myself, but I felt, I watched Bill and he was so good what he did, but very serious. I said, you know, I, um, I'll do that if you let me do it as Monty Python. If you let me be Bill Whittle as Monty Python, I will do it. And Roger was like, sure, I need the content. Um, so I started doing funny satirical videos for them. And I, I've told that story before, though it is funny. I'm not going to go back to it. Uh, and they became very popular. And then PJ Media shut down. And uh, at this point, you know, I was, I was still writing. I was writing books and all this. Uh, but I was pretty much out of Hollywood. Uh, and I was at a conference at a nonprofit that I won't name because it becomes part of the story. And Jeremy and Ben Shapiro, who I knew just a little bit, we would bump into each other now and again, sat, asked to have a meeting with me. And we sat down in a booth and Jeremy said, we're going to start a new thing, a new project uh, called Truth Revolt. And we'd like you to do videos for it. And I said, sure, you know, I'm not doing them anymore because PJ is gone. So uh, sure, I'll do those. Uh, so we started this funded by this nonprofit and it was really successful and we had a great time. We all we did was argue with each other and scream at each other and, you know, talk about politics. It was so much fun. We were having a wonderful time. And once a week or something, I would do a video, a satirical video, kind of like my openings here, but with a lot of art behind them. And we took this nonprofit, which was at this point holding, handing out pamphlets to like a thousand people, and we took their message to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people uh, through my videos and Ben's videos and all our commentary and all this stuff. And they hated us. Every week I got fired. Every week Jeremy would call me up and said, say, you're fired. And I would go again. He would say, yeah, they don't understand why you're making jokes. We're serious people. Why is he making jokes? And of course, but Jeremy would just never fire me. So I would, he would say, oh, you know, you're fired and come back next week with a new video. <laughs> so I thought, I like this guy. This guy really has something going for him. He's going to stand up to him. Uh, and so he, he would fire me every week, but never fire me. Um, and then one day they came in and I, I, we were incredibly successful. And they even went to this nonprofit and said, look, we can turn this into a money-making 
you know, opportunity, a money-making industry. And they said, how? And Ben famously, because he was a smart aleck kid, he was sitting in a board meeting. And he said, here's how. I'll, sh- I'll draw you an, uh, a diagram. And he drew a di- diagram of our videos going out and money coming back in. So, so Ben making friends wherever he goes and always knowing how to talk to people with tact and uh, understanding. Uh, and they came and they fired us all. They fired us. And um, <laughs> I don't know if, if they told this story on Sunday Special, uh, but Jeremy called me up and he said to me, if you can, if it's all right, don't take another job. I'm going to restart this as a new thing, as a capitalist enterprise. And I said, you know, call me. When he, when he got the money, call me up. Uh, and he did, and here I am. And it has been just an absolute, it has been a great, great experience because of the people, uh, because of you people, uh, because of the audience, and because of what it's all become and how powerful it's become and how uh, creative it's become. It has been one of the truly great working experiences of my life, and I have had some great, great working experiences. Um, from Anonymous, Dear Mr. Clavin, giver of only correct answers, my sister has been married for just under a year. My husband recently told me that she is cheating on my brother-in-law with a girl that she works with. Neither of them know that I know, and I don't know how to broach the subject. They separated, and I think she is staying with the girl. I hate to see my little sister living in this sin, and I want to get her side of the story, since all I know is what my brother-in-law told my husband. From what I have seen, he has been kind to her and is undeserving of infidelity. I'm not sure if there were problems uh, in the bedroom, but that's no excuse. My sister is manipulable, and I think this... uh, there's a degree of coercion from the lesbian coworker. Uh, it's been wearing on my mind to the point I can't sleep. I'm a happily married mother of three, and I know that marriage takes work and none is perfect. They don't have Christ in their marriage. I know that's such a help. I think my brother-in-law is wanting to fight for them. How can I talk to my sister and try to help their relationship when she doesn't know I know? Should I just stay out of it? I don't want to push her farther away either. First thing you should do, in my humble opinion, uh, is go down on your knees and thank Lord that you are, thank the Lord that you are a happily married mother of three. That is a beautiful thing. That is a gift to you, a gift of grace. Uh, I know it's fed by your faith, but your faith is also fed by that gift pouring into your life. And that is your first and last concern to make sure that you continue to be happily married, to make sure that your children are right, to make sure that your husband is happy, uh, to make sure that you are grateful for what you have. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I know this is painful, you know, and I'm not telling you that you should never talk to your sister, but if you were told this information in confidence and you're not supposed to know, you have to keep your mouth shut. If you were not supposed to know this and your sister doesn't want you to know this and you just found out uh, through a roundabout way, Stay out of it. Stay out of it. I I know it's painful, but that's what you should do. Uh, If, on the other hand, uh, you talk to your sister and she tells you what's happening, uh, if you sit down with her and you say, what is happening, and she tells you what's happening, then what I would do is I would listen to her. Uh, this is what I would do. I would listen to her. Uh, I would hear what she has to say. I would hear what, where she's coming from. I would not accuse her of having been manipulated. I would not say this is the fault of your lesbian coworker and you're just this lesbianism just appeared out of nowhere. Very unlikely that's the case. Uh, probably this is something that was in her to begin with. It can happen that people, women especially, because men's sexuality tends to be set very young, but women are a little bit more fluid. So it is possible that she was seduced, but still there must be something that is bothering her Uh, that caused her to do this. Listen to what she says. The more sympathetic you are, the more sympathetic you are, the less judgmental you are, the less you give her advice, and the more you try to hear what she's trying to tell you, the more chance there is that if there's a chance 
to change her mind, she will come to you and, li- and talk to you, and you will have a chance to have some input. Uh, but it is not necessarily your business to butt into. If you are told in confidence, keep your mouth shut. If, if you talk to her and she tells you about it, then, again, listen to her with understanding and love and, uh, and non-judgmentalness, mentalness, and there is some chance that she will come to you and ask for more advice, and you can give it to her in a loving and non-judgmental way. Uh, from Carl, I have a theological question. My brother-in-law recently took his own life. I'm really sorry to hear that. Is, that is such a disaster to people. Uh, he left my sister behind with three little girls. Just terrible. Um, I, I, I've always had a strong opinion of where suicide lands you, but with it hitting so close to home, I'm hoping I'm wrong. What is your view on the matter, seeing as you've dealt with this uh, personally? Uh, thank you for all you do. Your, your wisdom has helped me more than you know over the past few years. Well, thank you for that. Uh, my view on this is that God's judgment will be perfect. God's judgment and his mercy will be perfect. It will be far more merciful than you can be uh, in thinking about your brother and this terrible, terrible tragedy, which I'm sure has just cut you right down the middle. Uh, His mercy will be perfect. His judgment will be perfect. You have no vote. You have no vote, and he is, his mercy will be more merciful than you can imagine. His justice will be more just than you can imagine. You know, there's, I don't think there are rules for this. God sees so deeply into the heart, feels so deeply the suffering of people that, you know, you cannot just say, oh, this was done and therefore damned. This was done and therefore you're going to hell. You can't say it because you cannot fathom the mercy of God. You cannot fathom the the depth and the insight and the love of God. It is beyond your ability to understand. So pray to God for this guy's soul and try to go on yourself and try to you know deal with your own feelings because they are, I'm sure, uh, just really, really painful. And leave it to God because whatever he does, it is going to be absolutely perfect. It is not. We do not make the rules. Our ideas of hell mean nothing. We don't know anything about it. Our ideas of judgment don't mean anything because we have not the capacity to judge as God has can judge. We have not the capacity for the mercy God has or the justice he has. You're going to have to let your brother go and trust him to God, and God is trustworthy, and it will be all right. That is uh, the end of this portion, but we have uh, a members block coming up. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe and join us, and it will be keep you, you know, another few minutes from the Clavenless Week. <laughs> 